HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Morgan Harris, head sommelier at Aureole, right here in New York City. Well, actually, we're in Brooklyn. We'll talk to Morgan about wine, what else, Psalms, Aureole, and more. We'll taste, well, I think maybe I'm going to subject Morgan to a blind tasting um, and see how he does. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Great Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Seattle born Morgan Harris made his way to New York and jumped into the wine game full time at about, in about, during around 2011. He cut his wine teeth with Master Sommelier Laura Maniac at Cork Buzz Wine Studio, did a short Dint at John George before moving to Charlie Palmer's Oriel in New York City as head sommelier. Morgan was named Wine and Spirits Best New Sommelier. He holds an advanced sommelier certificate and is also, are you still an instructor at the American Somme Association? I do from time to time teach okay. with, with Andrew Bell. That's right. All right. Morgan, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Glad to have you on. A lot of stuff to talk about. But before we get into everything, I want you to kind of frame for everyone who you are. So give us a quick background on your journey in life and wine that got you to where you are today. 
which is at Oriole and sitting with me in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, See, I grew up in Seattle and uh, I moved to uh, Boston to go to college and uh, found myself working in restaurants. I I have an undergraduate degree in in acting and sort of knew I was going to have to have someone to to make a living, right, Uh, in the meantime. Uh, And I actually have, I'm I'm the SAG must join and... You know, did some acting stuff for the first two, three years here. I was in the uh, the bats down at the flea, uh, so some moderate successes. And I, I just really didn't enjoy the process of it. But I found myself working in restaurants, and wine is basically the opposite of. Wait, you worked in restaurants because you had to yeah, because I had to right. pay the bills. The, the classic story. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, like I made some very small amount of money during my acting career, right? But, but nowhere near. It was about the acting, not the living money. in uh, in yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, and I just I found. The wine community in New York, you know, this is sort of 2000, I graduated in 2008, so this would have been sort of 08 through 10, uh, was kind of the opposite of the acting community, which is everybody was, you know, in acting, everybody's trying to crawl over everybody else to get the next step, and right. wine is very horizontal. I think it has to do with sort of the shared nature of a bottle and how, well, okay, I can drink a whole bottle myself, but I'd rather drink two with you, right? <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. So, uh, so yeah, so I've always kind of been, um, interested in a lot of things and, and wine synthesizes a lot of my interests, history, geography, drinking. Was there uh, people, a, a person, place or moment that sort of clarified that for you? Yeah. I, in 11, I had, um, I went through a really bad breakup and left the city for like three months and I decided to go work a harvest in Eastern Washington at Waters Winery, which works with Gramercy Cellars. Um, they were in the right. same building. I saw Walla Walla Syrah, and I just had a lot of time to sit in a truck and, and think about, well, you know, okay, I'm 25 years old. There's only one time in my life where I'm going to know more than most people my age about wine, so let's let's see how that's into. But really seeing the process and, and that, you know, there, there are super hard people who are making wine all over the world, and while that won't necessarily be me, I'm beginning to be that person who connects... Um, the end consumer to those hardworking people right. um, is, I think, important for for both of them. It's a, I agree. not a necessary part of the equation, but certainly where I fit into well, it. We'll talk about that a little more, a um, little more into the show. All right, so you're in Washington, you escape, but you're working the harvest. Yeah, yeah. The plan a, was always to come back. You have this realization of the <laughs> connection between Yeah. you know, farming the farmers, the winemakers. Yeah. And, and so you're just, you know, you're out there and I I came back and sort of was like, "Okay, let's double down on this and and see where it goes." And so that's when I started working for Laura, um which was my first like full-time. I worked in wine bars for years before, 2 3 years before that. Right. So I got to pick up a lot of product knowledge, but I didn't necessarily hadn't worked fine dining or anything and with real responsibility. Uh, and I was there for about two years is doing most of the buying sort of with Laura overseeing me and, and all that. And, uh, I was still moving through my CMS stuff, but that was a lot, you know, it was a, it was a management position. So it was 60 or 70 hours a week and, and, uh, you know, a lot of responsibility for somebody who didn't have a ton of experience. So I learned a ton working there. A lot of exposure to product. Yeah. People, the industry. Customers, you know, some pretty good people. Yeah. Laura is, you yeah. know, is... Adept as anybody. Could it hang out and drink champagne till two in the morning? Mm-hmm. She's a big champagne <laughs> lover. Um, so you do that for a few years, like you said. Yep. And then what happens? You get tired, opportunities come well, up? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I had worked in like casual, the casual wine bar space for close to five years. And um, 
you know, Laura was going to open up more of them as she has done, you know, right. Chelsea, this, this is before Chelsea market existed and Charlotte and, and Charlotte. So, um, I decided that I would go, uh, I wanted to work fine dining because I think once you learn that style of service, whatever, wherever you're going to work in the restaurant space, uh, you, it's kind of like classical musicians playing jazz, right? Like you still need to work on your arpeggios and, and know your scales and all that stuff. Um, cause then you can make active decisions about what you're including or omitting in future services that you have. Right. Um, so I, I went to go work at John George. Um, I was not there for long, not cause I wanted to leave, but I, it was a misunderstanding. I had what would constitute a shift drink in any other restaurant, and that found me on the wrong side of a corporate wide must fire policy. Oh so I, you know, I'm not. You make everybody makes mistakes in their career, but uh, it's right. how you, you how made you come them back early, from it. <laughs> yeah, right? right? Um, so yeah, so I was there there for about six months. And Did that worry you for the moment? That yeah, I mean that summer that summer was uh, was pretty stressful. Summer of fourteen, right? <laughs> the two or three months I'll I was never unemployed, I was that. like, they'll, they'll, yeah, you you learn real quick. Right. Um, from that, it was not not a fun summer uh, for someone who likes working. Um, right. But yeah, so then in September of fourteen, I started at Oriole. Um, How does that come about? Somebody hooks you up, or you? <laughs> yeah, you I mean, there's there's a lot of it? like I was going out for for uh, you know all sorts of things, and I was uh, like very happy to be working the floor, even though I'd you know I wanted to do work in fine dining, and I probably wasn't going to get a program management experience in that. Um. But I will say that my floor management experience was kind of the only reason why I got the job at uh, John George, even though I had no fine dining experience. Because right. the management team, knew, like, they knew that I would know how to look at a floor. So if you are thinking to make that transition in, into fine dining, if you do work in, in restaurants, like, management in a more casual spot is still an okay way to do it. Was their perception of cork buzz? good i mean yeah yeah for sure i mean they, they knew who laura was right. and it's, it's it's a small it legit yeah it, actually at the time one of the there, there are three ms's who are named laura maybe four now um but <laughs> laura williamson uh who worked for uh, she's been all over the industry but she was worked for a number of years at rudy Vist's um like national sales director i i don't know exactly what she's doing right now but um she was head sommelier at uh at john george at the time so she ah. kind of held me the job okay uh, so that I, I could have it. But then moving to Oriole, um, I was just looking that summer and I had been, you know, talking with a couple of mentor figures and this is actually when all the SOM was opening up, uh, the SOM bar. Uh, and he was looking for someone for that spot. Uh, and he actually wound up taking, uh, a woman named Carrie who had my job at Oriole, right? So we kind of all swapped wow. there. Uh, so coincidence. he was like, well, I don't think you're the right person for this job, but you are the right person for this job, so you should go talk to Oriole. So I, I guess I, I, owe, I owe it to, to Aldo. Good for him. He's been on the show. He's a good guy. Yeah. All right, so you're one of the few psalms, certainly the guys that, and women that I've had on the air, that don't make wine. You don't make wine. You don't own a restaurant. You don't own a wine store. You're not writing books right now. I mean, you're sort of a som-som. I mean, that, yeah. that, that's what you're doing. So I want you to give me your, I guess, definition philosophy, and philosophy or philosophy of what you think a som is. I mean, because it's what you do. Right. And it's all you do. <laughs> And I don't know if you get asked it a lot, but, you know, a lot of people, there's the whole argument of being intimidated. What do these guys do? You know, what are they? 
Tell, yeah. tell me your interpretation. I, th- I think that's one of the biggest. I was recently asked by a prominent West Coast wine journalist about w- what's changed in the business in the last 10 years or so. And I think the difference is that everybody kind of knows what we are theoretically there when we arrive at the table, right? There's a much, because of some, uh, both the Psalm films and just more exposure is that... A couple of shows I feel cable. like, yeah, exactly. There's, there's some... Uh, <laughs> Uh, especially under people, you know, clientele is under the age of 40 or so understands that we're, there's less of the used Carl Shellsman bias that I get out of the sort of like 40 to 65 plus set um, from younger guests. And they sort of understand that my purpose there is to just get them something yummy within right. whatever price point they may be at. And maybe they want to go on an adventure or maybe they don't want to go on an adventure. But at the end of the day, we, that uh, I think they're less intimidated by us and more like, oh, this is a useful portion of our meal in the same way that our waiter might tell us about steaks or whatever it is. Wait, so clear that up for me. You're talking about under 40? Yeah. And you're saying 40 to 60. My you more get, established I mean, clientele still... is a little more hesitant. They, Like you said, they right. look down like, what's this used car salesman trying to sell? Right. Is this that, I would say that the bulk of people who I get who do have that opinion of or you get you re- get that read that bias off of them is is of an older set right so um but the i mean the amount of people who you know in all demographics who have a better grasp grasp of what i'm actually functionally there for when i show up to a table is is much higher than i think it was a decade ago right let's well we'll talk about Aura a little further because i want to talk about you but the clientele varies i mean when you have a big wine list a yeah. diverse wine list you know big price points I guess you're attracting all ages and still continuing to serve, you know, the the older market. Right. Um, I mean, we're right in the heart of Times Square. So um, we see all sorts of people. And the, and the clientele changes a lot over the course of the week. Because the middle of the week, it's a lot of, uh, like, professional dinners and lunches and stuff like that. And then towards the weekend, it's more tourists and, uh, you know, like the... More the, the Jersey you're Times and, Square. And, and, like, outer... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, in for, you know, pre-theater or whatever. So right. we actually, I mean, I I would love to see more people for, you know, dining and that sort of like after 8 o'clock set. But, you know, as New Yorkers, it's not a lot of New Yorkers unless you're going to a show want to be in Times Square after 8 o'clock or so. It's so also that's, neighborhood. I mean, Tribeca, West right. Village, East Village. There's places to go out afterwards. Resident. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess the location, you know. Right. It's a good location, degree. but, you know, it serves that location. Um, so what else about a psalm? I mean, what what else can you say? I mean, a true psalm is... Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, the, the job, if you want to talk about it that way, is, you know, someone who works in a restaurant. So, you know, by that regard, like Thomas at the Nomad, like definitely is still a sommelier because he's there on the floor of his restaurant three, four, five days a week. He just happens to also make wine in the Finger right. Lakes, right? right. Uh, I think that's, that's the job. So I, I think the important... A lot of smarter people than me, you know, elders in the industry have made the distinction that there's a difference between the sommelier skill set and what that prepares you for and actually being a sommelier, right? You know, right. I think Dustin Wilson would hold this opinion that he's no longer a sommelier, but he uses his sommelier skill set plenty. Right. Uh, which I think is the probably the most correct way, I think, to, to look at sort of the distinction of people who move off the floor. Because it is, it is a time bomb, right? At the end of the day, to interface with the restaurant life 
you know, as you require acquire more responsibility in your life, let's say children and, right. and you know, things change, quickly. you know, your parents aging, like not, you know, doesn't yeah. <laughs> the distraction, right. you don't even know what's going to be thrown at you and right. you're but working it, crazy hours, crazy days. Right. Um, you just work when everybody else plays. So at right. some point it, it becomes night times weekends. Yeah. And I love the floor. I, I'm, I'm addicted to the energy of it, but at, at some point, so what are your aspirations? I mean, you're happy doing this? Yeah, I that's an interesting question. <laughs> well, you don't um, yeah, I mean I you don't I, you don't have to have the answer. No, and you I You may not have it and it may not be the time to think about it. But I mean you look like we just talked, you right. know, Thomas is making wine, Dustin has the store, you know, he he works with the uh, Guild Som guys and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean for me, at the end of the day, it's I think a it's about getting more people to drink wine and sort of recognize um, its place as one of our greatest cultural institutions and objects. Like that, the fusion of, of agriculture and, um, and sort that, of history that and sounds like agriculture, right? Yeah. Uh, the million dollar question there is, you know, how do you make a, diff- a decent living at it without working for one of the big boys, which is not sure I want right. to, something I'm interested in doing either. So. Um, yeah. You well, know. if you're in no rush, sometimes <laughs> exactly. those We're, things play out. Wait to see you how, know, it, the, yeah, how it presents. The, the opportunity comes up and all of that. Definitely not ruling out <coughs> the writing thing, but it's sort of, yeah. well, what, what do I have to say that hasn't been said some you know, other way? Right. Um, Psalms have some pretty uh, wacky uh, reputations. Good. You know, mostly good. Some crazy, <laughs> some different and all that. Um, I mean, I know a little about you. I know that you're pretty engrossed in the profession i mean you're tasting you're take you're trying to pass your tests and all that you have all these kind of crazy routines and all of that i mean are you still tasting every week tasting groups watching your palate talk Uh, to me a little about like some of the things that you do besides working the floor which we just talked about which could be 50 60 hours (laughs) yeah um i'm actually there's a you know the 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 Quartermasters only is, is a, um, a, a, let's say, a, a controversial organization in our business. Um, Why? I, I think because of the fact that at the end of the day, there's a certain have and have not dichotomy that it creates uh, for people who are, you know, you, you take somebody like Raj Parr or Patrick Capiello, who are people who I look up to a lot professionally. Good and, as anyone, and, right? Right. And, you know... Not certified. Would, would blow my faces off on, on many topics, right? Um, they're also older than you, but, well, but no, I sure, know the, sure. where you're going. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, but yeah. how irritating must it be to them for, for someone to ask them, well, on what level are you? Right, it's like, so that that's the definite downside of it, and I understand I people's irritations about it. And um, I mean, to me, the big, greatest thing about the court is the community around it, right? So, so many of the connections I've made, the people who I am close with both professionally and personally today, uh, it, it's just, you know, it's a very preparing for the exams together as a community um, is, I don't think there's a lot of other industries that have that sort of So you're actively support. pursuing certification. Yeah, You've been doing and, it for years. And for me, is kind of old man on the hill, right? Um, so to speak, right? Uh, you didn't start get, as the old man. Though. I did, No, no, most certainly did not. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to be in a more leadership position now because I have sort of this dubious distinction because now I've passed all three three sections of the exam, just not at the right at time. At different times, right. Um, you know, I had Michael Engelman on. He did them all in one day. Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Oh, what's up with yeah. that, you know? So, um, 
Yeah, that's I, I view the exams as they're they're just a measuring stick, right? So, so, so that's a huge backdrop in your life. Uh huh. And the point I was getting to is we have all these routines. So because of the certification you're going after, you have to bone up on a lot of things: theory, yeah. service, tasting. So, I mean, are you tasting it's, every yeah, other day? I mean, for are sure. you not <laughs> brushing your teeth? Are you no, nothing so, carrying it's, it's trays nothing, around? Nothing, I'm not. I've never done nothing, nothing so crazy as that. But I'm on the floor every day, so like, so a lot of the service stuff kind of works itself out. You're lucky to be um, a service. And guy. the weirdest thing is how it happens to you on the restaurant floor. That like questions you would only ever think you get in an exam setting, <laughs> they come back to you the other way. You mean exam? Uh, like I had this guy maybe eight, eight months ago, and he asked for a last word, which is, or not a last word, but a corpse reviver. One of the great all-time classic cocktails, but it comes in three different variations. There's the, the Savoy, the number one, and the number two. And I almost everybody means like the Corpse Survivor number two is the drink. Right. Um, but I had to like ask him which which and it just felt like very much like one of these sort of being gaslit around <laughs> the exams because that's exactly the sort of thing that they would put you in and they're putting you in the most ridiculous situation of your entire career and the expectation of is it is that you come out of it looking like you, you kept your head on your shoulders. People don't so. realize that part of the exam covers spirits, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, for sure. You need to know anything you, know, you might put in a cup. You know, <laughs> you need to know drinks and all of that stuff. What we talked about a little outside, but what's the in the exam? There's theory, tasting, and service. Mm-hmm. I know you're on the floor every day, but what is? the hardest or has been the hardest thing for you to... I mean, tasting was definitely the hardest for me as somebody who doesn't feel like he has a lot of uh, intuitive ability around it. Um, you have to train yourself. Right. It was, it was a lot of training. So were you tasting a couple times a week? Yeah. I mean, I mean part of groups I, there, was, there was kind of like a, the last two years there, there was, there was, it was probably something like two, two and a half times a week. Um, and the only time you can do it is at, is at like morning. nine or 10 in the morning because somebody inevitably has to go to lunch service. So right. um, <laughs> it means, you know, it's just, it's, it's work, right? Because you, you get off the floor at, you know, 12.30 or 1 and... Get up at 9. You go to bed and you wake up at 9 or like 8.30 and you're back on the road again. And, you know, it's a weird gap in the middle of the day, but then you're already into Manhattan and... So typically you'd sit with two, three other peers? Uh, yeah, at least. Maybe more? Sort of the big alternatings are either you do a roundtable format where it's sort of thematic, so you do all aromatic whites... Um, you How much wine are you contrast. Um, you... I mean, spitting, but <laughs> spitting, right? <laughs> uh, it's usually like one bottle per person. So we have a group on Saturday that's mixed skill, and sometimes it has ten or twelve people. So we might do a whole flight of comparing aromatic whites, and then doing a whole flight of pyrazine derivative reds, and then obviously you you got to prepare for game day, so you need to do the actual exercise, which is the six classes, twenty five minutes, right. and that whole jazz. Has that stuff helped you through the years? Um, I think it's value. Um, so it's not an overwhelming yes. Uh, I think it's value is that uh, if there's something I see in young sommeliers is that they don't necessarily always know how to, like what makes a grape typical, right? Like, so because you don't know what anything is, so right. you're, you're applying blind. the theoretical side of well, what is a grape t- supposed to taste like to... You know, theory and practice. Because at the end of the day, our, our, as buyers especially, we have to be curatorial, right? And say that this thing is a good thing for this price and that thing is a bad thing for this price. And really to create value for our clientele, I, I would say that blind tasting is enormously helpful to that because you may love a wine, you, but if, if you're buying Bordeaux and it doesn't taste anything like Bordeaux, then 
why are you buying it, D- despite how much you may love it. Right. That's a good point. Um, it's sort of understanding. It helps you to understand those wines in a vacuum. That's a good point. Um, a recent guest I had on, and somebody you know well, was Bianca Bosker. She wrote a book called Cork Dork. Um, it was pretty much about her trials and tribulations of becoming a sommelier. Um, and she's a writer, so her ability to write, you know, was terrific. Um, you were featured prominently in the book, almost as a emotional and spiritual guy. I did not know I would be in so much of the book when but in reality, the book came out. <laughs> you know, I didn't know her and I didn't know you till now. And I read the book and I'm like, Jesus, you know, Morgan's like right by her side. So I guess the question is... Was her portrayal of you and her portrayal of sommeliers, was she accurate, on, exaggerated, self-serving? Um, what would you I say? mean, I can certainly, I think her portrayal of me was accurate. <laughs> I definitely recognize I'm not everybody's cup of tea, and, I, you know, that, that sort of comes out. You're comfortable book. with that. I'm okay with that. Okay. Um... You know, some of the criticisms that were leveled against the book by people like Levy Dalton and and that mostly centered around uh, sort of her relative dilettantism. Um, and I don't think that's entirely unfounded, especially when you look at it relative to like uh, Bill Buford doing Heat, right? Which is maybe your Same closest, thing. closest analog. But he was in the kitchen for like almost two and a half or three years. Whereas Bianca, so, Bianca was sort of like six to nine months or something right. like that. You're talking so, the time. Okay, but that, that is immaterial to the content of the actual book in which I learned things for me personally about the way that we perceive taste. It does, that does not make it a bad book and it doesn't make it... No book can be 100% representative of any community, right? And at the end of the day, I think... Fair for anything. Right. Um, I, I don't think she was fanciful or made anything up. Uh, I thought it was very unfortunate that they chose to introduce her to the wine world publicly. Her editors did via that uh, op-ed in the Times. Yeah. I thought that was with, very with unfortunate. Eric Asimov? Um, no, no, no. Well, it was... Oh, the other one. I'm her sorry. editors extracted something out of the book where she goes to a big like wine laboratory for right. Gallo or Manufacturing something like that. And, uh, you know, that was... It was very divisive. I, I told her when it came out, I was like, this is going to be spicy. <laughs> yeah. And it wound up being so... Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think one of the things we do worst as an industry is we don't allow people ways into this little shark tank that we have around wine and that we're kind of always nipping at each other's tails rather than trying to get more fish in the tank. Right. So there's not a lot of pie growing. There's a lot of uh, like, hey, can my slice be bigger? Right. Um, and when you look at the existent literature, you look at something. I, li- I like Eric Asimov's book very much, but it, at the end of the day, how many people can get, can you give it to? Because it's... Of the you know two hundred and seventy five pages is one hundred and twenty five pages of uh, you know middle fifties man memoir and right. one hundred and twenty one hundred and fifty pages of good wine stuff. Right. So that's not going to speak to everybody. That, and so that's her being what it a, is. a young uh, you know well educated, dynamic, vibrant young woman is a Writer. whole other you know opinion on that. Which so no, does she get everything right? No, but does she get too many things wrong? Also no. Right. Right, and so I think that's it's a valuable voice to be had in the sort of the whole discussion and getting I, people to know what we do. I don't think anything is so holy, you know, a profession or an industry where somebody could come in. And you made a good point about Buford and Heat, where he spent the time. Uh, well, he spent more time. More time. So, 
I think that book is why you don't see much about Mario Batali. I mean, it was all laid out in there pretty much. Yeah. You know? I, was, I, yeah. I, I think, you know, um, but it's no big deal if somebody goes in regardless of the time and makes their observations. And to right. your point, if, you know, she didn't make too many mistakes or whatever, it's just, you know, her And I, because I know her as a person, how she talks about her time in the business versus what her editors and her book people were sort of pushing her as. And those are... Kind of two different things, right? Um, and what she admits to in the book versus what, right? I agree. You know, it's it's they need to sell books, and so if that's what looks good, it's in there. They're sort of stretching the rubber a little bit. Um, I agree. They're going to do that. Enough of cork dork. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to follow up on this earlier. You said the best wines are made by great farmers, and that you. Morgan Sommelier. Not a great farmer. No, you, <laughs> right. That's, I, I didn't time that right. But you, you, Morgan Sommeliers are the link to the people who make the wine and the people who love to drink it. Yeah. You know, so expand on that for me. You talked about it a little. I mean, you can I mean, curate, taste, influence. Yeah. Personally, there's there's no greater moment of professional reward than when I have... I know who made the wine and how he farmed it or she, um, or at least how that group of people thinks about their wines in, in that region, whatever sort of aesthetic uh, movement they may belong to. Usually, you know, organic, biodynamic, whatever it may be. Um, and they work hard. They want to like go hang out with their dog and, and like maybe they drive their tractor around or hang out with their kids. They, can't, they, can't, they can't be here, right? right? You know, they don't necessarily want to be in the big old city selling wine to people uh, and then vice versa you, you the great thing about a restaurant is the sort of hospitality nature of it, which it's anyone you're, you're coming to be taken care of right and you say i'm going to spend an amount of money and i hope to have a good time and and when you get to connect when you get to be the person that connects those two people and you know that they're going to buy be able to buy diesel for their tractor and like compost and whatever they need for the next year's harvest and they don't have to come to new york right. to sell this bottle of wine and then right. vice versa you know it's um, it's not the most important portion of that whole interaction but uh and then that, that that whoever your guest comes in is renewed and rejuvenated and go go back to their job whatever it may be on on monday and right. go kick butt like that's but, that's but, good that's happy two things to that one do you think if you didn't do that washington harvest you wouldn't have had that attachment to kind of what's going out on the field and farmers, or you would have... I think I'd certainly have a less visceral appreciation of right. what it's like. Yeah. You know, like I, speaking of dilettantes, right, I, I was I was there for four months. I did a whole back-to-front harvest, but I wasn't there for several years doing it. So I, I got a pretty solid upfront look at, you know, what a 16-hour harvest day looks like. Right. Because uh, I did it for four or five or six weeks when we were in the thick of it. Um but you know, at the end of the day, it's it's wine is one of our finest agricultural products, and people. I don't. Forget that, I think that's one of the funniest things. Of like, I'm 32, right? And you go to these dinner parties, and they've spent these people have spent however much money on organically raised, like hormone free beef that's grass fed and dry aged for 42 days, and they've got fancy cheeses on the table. They spent money on all these things, and the thing that's in the middle of the table like was extruded out of a tube somewhere in Fresno. Right. 
right? And that, that for better or worse, and I think it has to do with prohibition and sort of all alcohols being equally evil, so therefore they're all the same, and, and how we drink in general, like that hasn't necessarily quite sunk in with people, at least right. people my age, is that like you're, not you're the making the same decisions, that. right? You know, it's an um, agricultural product, right. it's, you know, farm sustainability, right. organics, you, whatever. And if you want to buy a bottle that was actually made by a human being in their hands, you got to spend like $18 a bottle. Right. It's kind of where it starts. So there's a lot, right. That, that's so the threshold of artisanality, if you want to call it that. So this is kind of a broad question, but, you know, see if you could narrow it down to me. Is there anyone in your mind through the years, you know, because you've felt this way that exemplifies that? I mean, is there an attachment you've had with a wine because of the story and the land and the farmer? Yeah, um... I mean, this I think guy- for me, like when I think about professionally, my biggest inspirations, and I think about somebody like Pascaline Le Peltier, who I think at Rouge de Mont in particular, that was fully on display on the list. It's like, we're just not going to list anybody who doesn't feel this way about their farming. Right. Right. And we're going to do all the hard work and the homework to make sure that it's not just, they're not just slapping that on a label, but that that's actually how they do it. Um, but I'm talking about producers. I mean, is there somebody. You know, like when you talk about Bandol, it's hard not to talk about Tampier and Lulu. Yeah, I mean, I you know I went to go visit Tampier and then had a you know very charming visit. But you know, you go and uh, to wine regions and you look at people's vineyards and you're like, that looks like a living, happy thing, right? <laughs> right. That looks like a place where I like things are living and agriculture is happening and and you know, the, which is ironically not really a lot of what happens in Washington, right? Um, so, I mean, I'm always inspired by people who who think about that in a big way. So domestically, it's people like Steve Mathiason and um, Dan Petrovsky at Massacan, yeah. right? Um, or... Um, both of them are coming on the show in the next probably six, eight weeks. Yeah, they're, they're both fantastic. Or um, That's in the States, which is hard yeah. to find guys like that. Yeah, very hard. How about hard. when you move to Europe? I mean, in the Loire, like Pascaline. Yeah, I mean, the, like the Baudries. Um, I mean, I think that their wines always exemplify that. Right. And, um, you know, right. I, I, I like lively wines. I don't necessarily need them to be crazy and, and, and natural, but I, I want them to... A pet net with, like, a bacterial strain <laughs> yeah, floating you know, and around. I like, weird, I like weird beers, but at some right. point... That's one of the things that comes out of, I guess, the, the formal sommelier training, is you start flaws and, like, those things. You, again, you talk to younger sommeliers, and, and they don't necessarily know, no, this, this wine just smells like vinegar, and that may be what you like about it, but let's call a spade a spade and say that... That's something that's actually obscuring the terroir here. Right. There's a lot of, um, you know, what are, but everybody has different tolerances for that. So I I see both sides of it. Right. right? Like, I like pretty bready wines. Other people don't like bready wines. Right. Um, So it's it's all different. Are people pretty good at um, describing what they want when they walk in here? Do you have to pull it out (laughs) of most people? The easiest way to do it. That's one of the tasks that you're. This is the sommelier trick is you just ask them what they generally drink. It's a much easier way because I've had that. That's thing, the right? easiest. That is question. the easiest way to do it. I, I and would, you take it from there. I yeah. Oldest I very rarely. I'm book. like. I'm like. I don't want to. No. I want a fruity wine that's sweet but also dry and I, not I too, drink Rombauer at home. <laughs> yeah, but that that gives me a very firm very picture so. of what they yeah. enjoy drinking. But people are perennially surprising, and um, you do know, people not, lie sometimes. <laughs> 
do they, you know, like they want to sound cool or they don't well, want to say fancy? Or? They'll, they'll be, they'll just, they just won't understand what they've just asked for, right? Okay. They're like, mm, we'd like a dry red wine. Like, well, that's all 800 of them on the list. Right. Can you help <laughs> so, me? So, I mean, sometimes you just reply to their question in yeah, the, form, I did, of, I in the form of being as, you're not derogatory about it. You're just like, we haven't narrowed anything but down. But you know how to narrow the queries. Yeah, because, well, that. I mean, they probably mean Tannic or, right. y- you know. Or um, maybe European versus American. Right, but they're not, certainly not asking. They're, they're, I mean, I don't know. Maybe somebody locked them in a room somewhere and force-fed them Lambrusco and Manischewitz, but... Uh, <laughs> Isn't Lambrusco carbonated Manischewitz? <laughs> no, no, no. No, I love, so Lambrusco. I love Lambrusco. I'm a Lambrusco evangelist. Yeah. All right, Morgan, we're going to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, I want to focus on a few things. I want to talk about Oriole, the program there, some of the wines, what you're doing over there. I want to subject you to our wine list. I want to get your take on stuff. And then, like I said earlier, let's taste a little wine. Let's throw it at you blind and see what you could do. We've been talking to, we are talking to Morgan Harris. Morgan's the head sommelier at Oriel. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Morgan Harris. Morgan's the wine guy at Oriole. Um, let's talk about that a little, Morgan. You've been at uh, Charlie Palmer's Oriole for three over and a half three, years. three and a half years. Which is like forever in the service industry. It is. Young guy, too. Um, there's a word called spilkes. After doing something for a while, you get spilkes and want to get out of there. So kudos <laughs> to you. Um, Oriel is a one-starred restaurant, you know, so it's, it's a very happening place. Charlie Palmer is about as well-known chef-wise um, as anybody. So let's talk about the list there. Obviously, you got in there, and it pre-existed. Correct. And it's pretty damn big. So before we talk about, you know, your touches and what you're doing, how big is it? What's there? Where's the strength? Yeah, um, the list when I inherited it, and kind of obviously still as it stands today, but um, the restaurant opened in 88 when I was three. <laughs> and we don't have anything else for the original seller, but this Wait, was that off the cuff or is that real? No, that's. Were you the, three and 88? I was three and 80. Okay. Um, and it's, yeah, to make it 30 years in, in any business is a, is a good long time. But basically, uh, we still have wines definitely that were purchased in the early aughts that are on the list. Um, 
And it's interesting. Uh, there's definitely a ton of... It, it's, it's a wine list that comes... You know, the restaurant's original heyday was the early 90s, which to me is sort of an era of like, you want a thing, you can have a thing. Like, it's America. Do whatever you want. Right. Uh, and so we kind of do have everything on the list, um, but they're definitely, by volume... Um, you know, blue chip Cabernet and uh, Burgundy. Um, I bought a lot of Bordeaux in the last year because our clientele right now is is quite keen on it. I think, frankly, the so prices. Berg, Bordeaux, Cali. Yeah, and then obviously white Burgundy uh, as well as what a big portion of the list. And then you know, other than that, it's it's very sort of spread all over the place. I mean, I have everything from Styrian Sauvignon Blanc to um, like Slovenian orange wine to uh, well that. Not that's, in quantities, but... Of uh, course. <laughs> I mean, that's that's your prerogative, and it's also good to, you know, have that for people. But that's the next question. You know, that's the list. It was designed in that period right. and had to serve. You're there now. It ain't the 90s, right? <laughs> so it's a different market. So what are the touches that you put on... Well, it's ...to a, stay in the game and serve the market? Yeah, it's it's a new... American restaurant, right, at the end of the day. Um, and so certainly I've thought very much about domestic wines and, and their place on the list. Um, and I think that just based on what I've seen is that when, so we used to be on a townhouse on 61st Street. I think that probably our clientele is a little, uh, the restaurant used to be smaller. I think it used to be much more aggressively fine dining focused than it is now because we have a formal dining room that's white tablecloth and tasting menus and all that. And we have like a casual sort of bar room with burgers and stuff. Uh, I think we probably moved down a little bit in terms of price point. Um, like we have huge verticals of blue chip Cali, like Harlan in nine vintages wow. and Bryant family and stuff like that. But frankly, I don't sell very many of them. Um, and so I've really worked to shape the list uh, towards getting a lot more affordable stuff on the list. Like we probably have, because we have the space for it. We have Staying in Cali, like the Harlan's yeah, 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 and Bryant's are yeah, but also crazy. But working into alternative want- varieties. So I like the wines of Matthew Rorick of Forlorn Hope and um, uh, Hank up at uh, La Clarine Farm of the Sierra Foothills. I mean, these are wines that we would sort of put in the, the 7% movement, the new California Um you know, I don't list anything too crazy funky, but like Honor Roberts Trousseau, uh, all of these sort of, a lot of the wines that like Chad Walsh would buy at Agern. Right. Uh, but also a big focus on on mature vintages. Um, I don't necessarily list all of them because I buy them in small quantities, but I bought a huge parcel of like 70s, 80s, and 90s Ridge that, you know, if the right person comes asking about it. So um, it's, you'll buy it to have and you know... That with certain clientele, you right? Offer it's it's it up. to some degree. Like I always try to buy something in a five to six bottle quantity, but if I can't, and, right. and I only have a single bottle of it, um, you know, I, I definitely have a clientele, and and I'm happy to offer those wines to people who seem interested in them. Uh, you know, if if that conversation goes that way, it's not like I'm trying to hoard them. Wine I think is for drinking, right? Uh, but yeah, I just bought like. Recently, bought some '91 um, uh, like Argyle Pinot from uh, from Cali and. Uh, bought some old Rubicon recently because um, I love old California. It's one of my favorite things to drink. And a lot of those wines are not, you know, crazy expensive. Sometimes, and it's crazy to look at them versus the current pricing, right? Like, right. I, I will buy a gray market, something like Diamond Creek or Spotswood for less money than the current vintage. So Really? Yeah. Like, so 
you made a move to complement the cuisine because it's American right. by like but also you the said clientele. going more domestic and the clientele wants right. that. Which is which is I mean, we do a lot of wine between like eighty and hundred and forty bucks and I wanted fun wines. That's to a sell. big sweet spot. Yeah, I wanted to sell wines that were in there. So, you know, Forlorn Heart Barbera at seventy two bucks on the list is a is a great way to go and it's farming focused and it's very much emblematic of what's so let's exciting talk about in California that. to Forlorn be. Forlorn Hope's a cool winery out in California. Mm-hmm. Barbera's, you know, that... Sierra Foothills. That, that... East Bay. That uh, Piedmont grape. Yeah, you got it. Um, what gets you to that? I mean, how do you get somebody on that? It goes back to, you know, what do you drink? Yeah. But um, how does a guy wind up with that? <laughs> you know, it's mostly when they say, like, okay, I want Cali Pino, but I want something different. Like, I mean, I certainly have a large selection of California Pinot Noir, but Barbera is very soft in terms of its right. tannins. Sort of middleweight, so juicy. So that, that'll get you there. Uh, and, you know, it's affordable, right? So I, I still buy a lot of classic varieties, too. It's not all weird varieties like Falangina and Trousseau and stuff like that. Right. But uh, Now, um, is, is the stuff you're talking about, the Forlorn Hope, the Orno Roberts, that stuff selling on yeah. a fairly regular yeah, yeah, basis? Yeah, for sure. And, and there are things in my wine, there are things, they are things that my wine team likes a lot that I like. Um, you know, the Cabernet is going to sell itself. Right. Right. The Pinot Noir is going to sell itself. Right. I'm going to buy cool producers in each of those. Like, I have Matthias and Cabernet on the list, and I have Ann Hill Farms and uh, Drew. All that and stuff's all reasonable, these, right? You know, all of these, all those wines are, you know, under 120 bucks on the list. Does that translate? I guess it'd be easier in Bordeaux than Burgundy, <laughs> where you could find. You know, smaller chateaus or whatever. I mean, yeah. Do, do you said you were bringing in I more mean, Bordeaux? I mean, the great thing about Bordeaux is that it's so reliable, right? So I'll buy producers that are maybe under the radar uh, from old. Like I have two thousand uh, Saint-Ami on the list from a producer called Roll de Fombrage that I had never had before. I what's tr- it called? Uh, Roll de Fombrage. Spell for me. F uh, R O L space D E uh, space Fombrage. F A U M B R A U G E. Right. Which I'd never heard of before, but it's 2000, which is anybody would put in, you know, top, top, top vintage in the last 20 years. And, uh, you know, it's on the list for like 120, 130 bucks because I like that. That's a great find, right? Yeah. I have 06 enemy on the list, which is great for uh, 80 bucks, you know. So uh, I see the the opportunity there is that you can buy relatively mature wines for not a total arm and a leg. Right. Um, which is also when Bordeaux starts to feel like Bordeaux. Is it fair to say you've moved it more to that direction than what it was? Uh, or it, it existed a little that way? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of focus uh, by the previous beverage director around getting very big blue chip verticals on the list, which I didn't see a clientele to sell those to, and to me, the worst one. At the Bryan Park location. Yeah, like we Because the other place was yeah, Upper was, I East think Side, a, yeah, moneyed neighborhood. Exactly, and you, you just saw a little less of the world and a little bit more of the Upper East Side. Right. Right. Um, Good way so Soldera verticals, like very, very expensive Brunello at 700 or $800 a bottle made more sense. And right. so there's a lot of that stuff where I'm, I, I have honestly sold it at cost or close to cost so I can get the amount of bottles down in the cellar a little bit right. so that I can then use that to buy super fun other wine. Right. <laughs> Makes sense. Right. So a big thing with restaurants that I've noticed doing the show and as a consumer um, has been two things that jump out one is champagne i mean you just see way more offerings and restaurants that go 50 70 you know offerings right you know 10 years ago and natural wine which we talked a little about right um before 
Um, I want to get your take on natural wine. Um, is it something that's important to the Oriole list? Do you have to be careful? or um, You mentioned a few. It's something that's important to me because I think we should so buy wines. it starts wines, with you, which is fine. Right. We should buy wines that, that were... We should reward good farmers, right? Because good farmers generally reward us with great wines, but it's it's both sides. If we don't support those, the people who farm that way by buying their wines that's Mathias, and sell and them, that's exactly. Right? Um, but we do have a clientele who expects a certain classicism out of their wines, and I, I feel like at certain price points, it's much easier to get away with, um, especially under a hundred bucks or so. Because if like the great example is La Clarine Farms, right? This is um, uh, Hank Beckmeyer. He makes wine up in the Sierra foothills. All, like very all natural yeast ferments, picks all of his wines. Just and, stop for a sec. The yeah. Sierra foothills, not yeah. the most famous wine no. growing region. <laughs> Just pin it geographically. Yeah, so you're about, for you're about our three hours listeners. east of uh, San Francisco, sort of up towards Tahoe. Okay, yeah. So that's the area. Uh, yeah, exactly. So okay. he's up there, and he makes these very hands off. He's a, his wife farms a bunch of goats, and <laughs> uh, he makes these very hands off, which is say very low intervention uh, Syrahs. You know, twelve and a half percent alcohol, absolutely no new oak on them. He makes them in like resin tanks. Looks much more like winemaking in the Loire than right. Northern Rhone than it does here. And they're a little fuzzy, right? You know, they have a little little volatile acid to them. Right. And they're a little bready because it adds, adds effectively almost no sulfur to them. Um, and they're really affordable. I mean, these are these are domestic but wines. But play well in the restaurant? Yeah. And, and to me, they're the first place I take people often. And they because they're not a total terminal leg, there's a little bit more permission towards, well, this isn't exactly what I wanted, but right. it is really cool in this different way. Right. But then it's also about getting traditionalist producers like... Um, I find so much more value in the in the old school guys because land prices in California have gotten so crazy. crazy. But you look at someone like De, like Domaine Eden's Cabernet from Santa Cruz is on the list for eighty bucks, and Pretty it blows ev- anything I can even think about buying from Napa out of the water these days. Really, almost anything. So that's a great record. You, it's it's getting very hard to buy Napa Cabernet for yeah for that price. Yeah, because land, land's three hundred thousand dollars an acre. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Which, you know, hopefully Sonoma is starting to make a move, but that's, right. you know, going up in price too. Yeah. Um, so you're a fan of natural wine. For you sure. like to expose customers to it. You yeah. curate and pick. You drink it yourself, and you're right. You want to support the farmers. Right. And we talked earlier about, you know, you have this fancy meal in front of you and then this manufactured wine. Right. You know, why not drink that? I agree with you on that. All right, I want to move on to our wine list. I want to get your take on a bunch of questions. I'm going to subject you to about five questions. I'm ready. You could buzz through them. <laughs> um, so the first question we ask is, what are you drinking now? And that's, you know, what are you tasting? What's seasonal? What are you trying for the restaurant? What do you have a mini obsession with? I uh, actually a lot of Northern Rhone white right now. It's it's. I mean, we're having quite a balmy spring, but uh, certainly going into this this winter season, that was a big one for me. So, um, what regions? Andrio or yeah. Well, no, more the more the southern right. So Saint Perret, um, as well as like Croze Hermitage Blanc, like Grios. Uh, and like I think all those wines are really underlooked. The sort of more like Grenache Blanc, you can sort of include that down into um, the Southern Rhone, right? And in, in, into the wines of the Roussillon, right? right? These sort of sun-loved, bitter, um, textural, oily sort of uh, Southern French, which begins in the Northern Rhone, but then sort of extends through there. So, 
Roan Whites, North and South. Yeah. You mentioned Grail. Give me one or two other. Yeah, I love Harv Suho's. S O U H A U T. Yeah, he's a Sancho Chef producer predominantly, but he makes a. A Blanc. Uh, it does. I think he. I don't think he uses an appellation for it. I don't know exactly where the vineyards are, but they're. It's fantastic. So textural. Any like if you got pasta and mushrooms or anything like it that, could hold it, just, up. it just begs for it. Great value too, right? Yeah, like yeah, a, a fancy wine for not a you know it tastes like very fancy white Burgundy, but is it on your list? It is. Yeah. Okay. Um, give me one more. Uh, I really love the wines of Mas Julien. That's a little little further to the south. They blend a little bit of Viognier in Spell there. Spell for but, me. M A S space J U L I N. Yeah. Okay. She's an old school Rosenthal import, so you can get it get it up there on the Upper East Side. Cool. Those are good ones. We'll uh, post you know all the info on our social media. All right. Give me Morgan Harris's favorite wine and food pairing. I know it's kind of a silly question, but you certainly drink enough wine, eat a lot of food. At some point. You know, you look at the two of them together and go, "This." Is- yeah, yeah. Uh, I gotta say that, like, one of my all-time tops is. Uh, Wait, you know the Grape Nation? You're not allowed to say champagne and oysters. No, no, no. Gosh, so uh, that's not that's not gonna happen. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think uh, like off dry uh, riesling and like pork belly, like salty, fatty with sweet and sour. I I just think that's Great one of the foil for that type of right. Food. One of the. And you can include that out to like sort of like anything that's salty and fatty. I'm just taking pork belly because it's the most salty and the most fatty thing. But, uh, you know, barbecue, a lot of uh, Chinese cooking uh, for your takeout. Obviously, it's just uh, and I just like it on its own, too. Give me a couple of recos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, the Lauer wines, the Barrel X, that's like pretty much all around L-A-U-E-R. town. L-A-U-E-R. Yeah. Um, the Barrel X in particular is right at about 20 bucks retail usually. Great pri- um, price point. From, from Bob Bowden is fantastic. Uh, you've got um, Kola Ruprecht uh, that uh, Dresner Spell. brings in. Uh, K. Oh, my God. German spellings now. Uh, K-O-H-L-E-R space Ruprecht. R-U-R-P-R-E-C-T. H or C C H T. Listen, Ruprecht. I'm only trying to help you with your theory <laughs> stuff, so don't get down on me. All right. No, 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 no. All right. So those great. are so those are good recos and really a truly good pairing. That yeah, compliment. Just great food wines. I right, give me. I think you get out and about. Give me your favorite wine restaurant and our bar. Give me one or two picks that have the selection, the people that know what they're doing, you know, good environment. Who's doing right. it right? Uh, I mean, the wine bar scene, I, I think it's pretty much uh, the, the reigning champion at the moment is definitely um, a company to Vincer Naturel. Caleb. Uh, Caleb's it's a big favorite. In one there. of my oldest friends in the business, so I'm a little biased, but at the Who, same Caleb? time. Yeah, yeah. But he's doing it right. I mean, yeah. I'll give you that. Yeah. Give me all right. So that's a bias, but a good answer. Give me a second choice. Yeah. So then, um, I am so excited to check out uh, the new racines because I with loved Pascaline. it. I loved it with Arno. Um, but Is Arno still there? Or he's yeah, yeah. Gone? No, no. Okay. He's, he's and Pascaline yeah, came in. They've just restructured. Yeah, Pascaline, right. but they're still around. Um, like Ar- and Arno is fantastic. I just think they're sort of bringing some more heat to the bullpen, as it were. Yep, I agree um, with that. Uh, and Eric Corshi used to cook in North End and Kalai people went over there. One of my all-time favorite chefs. Yeah. Right. Uh, he just makes it's insanely old-school, soulful French food. Um, and I don't. He's he's just a 
I think that's going to be a, a, a that's big a thing good going trio. forward. You just have to make it all the way downtown, too. I know. Well, company <laughs> is not, to Chamber you know, Street. Well, but that's yeah, even, this you is know, even further. I, yeah. It's a neighborhood away. But if you live in Brooklyn, it's right, you're right through Across. it, right? You know? All right, good ones. Give me, do you have, is it, I never asked anybody this, but is this a silly question to ask you? Your favorite all-time wine? Uh, favorite, oh, like individual bottling. Okay, I'll give you a, I'll give you a vintage. How's that? Okay, I, I think for me, and I mean this in the least snobby way possible, but the the nineteen seventy eights right now. Like, if there's any old vintage you can drink from anywhere, if someone's like, you can never rent seventy eight anywhere, Bordeaux, yeah. California, yeah, it's Italy. They're all insane right now. Seventy eight. The serious wines from that vintage. Give me three areas. You don't have to rank. Like them. I have, I have two seventy eight. Like Bordeaux for sure. Bordeaux, Cali, Cali, um, and. Uh, Champagne, well, not, not really champagne. Uh, Bordeaux, champagne's more 79. Uh, Bordeaux, Cali, and uh, Burgundy, for sure. Rhone. So you're saying a 78 Heights Martha's Vineyard is like just as good as the 74? Uh, I pretty don't damn I don't know close. If anything, I've had the 74 once. But, but I'm not sure anybody's. But it's anybody's, pretty good foil yeah, yeah. for it. Okay. And then like those wines are still affordable. Like I just bought Freemark. I have Freemark Beauchet on the list right now. Freemark Abbey, the old school. They're in the Judgment of Paris. It's on the list right now. I have like a bottle of it for like two eighty, which, which is, again is not a cheap bottle. No, of no, wine, no. I know but, in the game that's a fair right. price point. So, all right. So, anything seventy eight? Good answer. First time anybody just gave a vintage. Last question, <laughs> and then we're gonna quickly taste a wine blind, and then we'll reveal it. You mentioned one earlier, but let's just tighten up the answer. Give me your best wine around 15, 20 bucks. I always say my kid's going to a dinner party. Right. Doesn't want to buy crappy wine, but he wants uh doesn't want to spend a ton of it. Give me a red, give me a white. You could do region, maker. Yeah, for sure. I think I mean I just realized this the other day I was talking to someone. The reason why French wine like it's so much more affordable is because they've got all these farm subsidies. So, like ah. we're getting helped out here. But I, I mean, I think you would be very hard pressed to find a better twenty dollar bottle of wine than Bernard Baudry's like entry level Chinon. Chinon for red, uh, which okay. I think is called Le Grezzo, I think is the basin. Okay. But there's a lot of his cuvées that are right around that I'll price, that and they out. just vintage in, vintage out. Solid. They're just incredible wines. Um, give, give me a white. And then in white, I drink a ton of Aligote these days. A-L-I-G-O-T-E, yeah, exactly. which is the, from where? Uh, Burgundy. It's the like one of the other grapes of Burgundy. Right. But they it's grown all over the place. But I, I really like Comte Armand's. Um, Spell. Uh, C-O-M-T-E. Comte. Like um, the cheese? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Armand, A-R-M-A-N-D. They're a good big-time Pomard producer, so you get all this like... And your price point is where? Yeah, it's right around 20. Okay. Um, and give me just a quick descriptor of what we're drinking. So Aligote, uh, it's in the Chardonnay family, but it's definitely got more acid and sort of tartness to it. They're, nice. they're never serious, serious wines, right? Good food wine, though. Uh, but they're great for, for oysters and any sort of like fresh veggie situation and like Tuesday nights. Something instead of <laughs> Muscadet. Right, exactly. Cool. All right. So, Morgan, in front of you, you have a glass of no secret white wine. All right. Of course, I know what it is because I bought it. I just thought, because this is what you've been doing for the last seven, <laughs> eight years, stick your nose in it and on a blind taste, tell me what you think we're drinking. David, you want to come in for a glass? Yeah. It's, once we're drinking, I, so I hear. All right, we're gonna we're gonna take a sip here. It's really sa it's savory on the balance. One of the biggest things I think about when I when I think about uh, 
like wines in general is this fundamentally fruity or fundamentally savory. It's actually, I think a lot more fat brush to small brush, right? Uh, it's not like, oh, this smells like apricots. It's like, well, this is fruity or is it savory? This is savory. So this is savory. Okay. That helps you with a region and a grape? Mm-hmm. Like, Dave, you have to wait because I can't reveal the bottle yet. <laughs> um, no, stay there. It's got a little bit of fizz, which uh, to me speaks of from you know particular dramatic countries, and there's a lot of nice a sort of bright acid to it as well. Take another sip. It is, I hate to use the word fizzy, which is acidity. Yeah. But there's a, a little prominent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, dissolved CO2. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's kind of salty. And there's this mild sort of sweet, uh, herbaceous Very. quality to it. Um, not like sweet, fruity, but like uh, like basil or faux greens, right? right? Not um, vegetal, but more right. uh, savory greens. Yeah, not not as uh, it's not Sauvignon Blanc. It doesn't have that really obnoxious asparagus. No, 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 none to of it. None of that. Mm. Um, if I had to guess, uh, and it's not Riesling, it's not fruity enough for that. Um, I think it's more. Savory. What about it's not fruity enough for Riesling? What about sweetness? Is that part of the? Fruity? Yeah, it's for sure. I mean, it's it's not there's, sweet there's no, there's there's no actual sweetness in it. Um, it's really savory though. It's um, got that dissolved CO two thing. That's a little bit that sweet herbaceous thing. So I don't know. It feels like it's kind of in that. And there's a lot of lees. So the sort of stale beer. Tell people what lees are. Yeah. So basically, they're they're leftovers. They're, they're the inactive yeast cells there. Um, right. They leave uh, them. Yeah. And they kind of smell like stale beer, like cottage cheese. Right. Um, or brie rind. Um, All right. So, so stop beating around the bush. What are we drinking? <laughs> I think we're probably drinking Gruner Veltliner from Austria. Um, Gruner Veltliner from Austria. From the Wachau of, of Federspiel quality from the, uh, okay, so and the 2016 vintage. Okay, so I'm going to say you're two for four. Okay. okay. Uh, here's the reveal. Ah, uh, okay. So what so we're drinking is... This is a great $20... <laughs> yes. Well, I try to bring in wines. because fantastic. So what we're drinking for this week's weekly wine sip is a 2015. What would you say? 16. 16. Okay, so you were close. Close enough. Goblesburg, which is the producer. Schloss Kellerai, which I guess is just the designation. That's, yeah, that's like a state, right? It's the, it's the right. fortress cellar. Gruner Veltliner from the Camptel region. Okay, what'd you say? What, what? I said Wachau. Wachau. But, you know, I, I, I'll skip and a jump. <laughs> this wine retails for... Dave, you can come in now. This wine retails for about 16 bucks. It's yeah. a Terry Thies selection. Yeah, fabulous. Who, you know, he's not putting out bad wines. For sure. Um, and it's available at better wine stores. I know what the alcohol is. What are you guessing it is? I would guess somewhere between 12.5 and 13. It's 12.5, exactly. So that yeah. makes it very drinkable. Um, Fabulous with food. So what else can you tell me? Good producer, Goblesburg? Yeah, Goblesburg is one of the, the great producers in the Camptal. The Wachau is like the real heavy hitter region, but if you're going to drink somebody in the Camptal, which is, a, you know, I'm not, it's not lesser. It's just a little bit uh, more obscure. Right. Um, Goblesburger is the top, top producer. Um, I, I had Jay McInerney in here, and I think they make a wine called Tradition. Uh-huh. And it tasted like a burgundy, and I know he was like a big burgundy guy, and he couldn't figure it out, and that was the whole point, you know, to put him no, on. No, Jay's, Jay's great. Just Jay he, drinks a lot of fancy wine. Yeah, and for better or worse. But I knew it was a Burgundian, <laughs> Aust- you know, Austrian. Well, the wine greatest thing about about these wines is how, like, you can drink the very, very greatest producers for not a total arm and a leg. Right. Which is you can great. you can come you can come drink. Uh, 
you know, literally the best producers, best vineyards for like 120 or 130 bucks on my list. And the regular everyday affordable stuff is also fantastic as well. The category is, yeah. you know, great. They're, the price ceiling quality floor is very high. Right. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up, let's do a quick analysis. So it's that classic sort of pale yellow, right? Yeah, exactly. Give me your nose descriptors on this. So to me, like the fruit character does have is very much in that sort of pomacious, so green apple, golden apple, just right. pristinely ripe with this sort of backbone of uh, like lemony, lemony yellow acidity and liminess. Definitely citrus there. I always get a little bit of like underripe green pineapple on Gruner in particular. That's I'm not one much for like wild hair notes. But, All right, that's uh, a good one. A, I think like that's a, legit. Sort of umeboshi, like a sour plum sort <laughs> of thing to it. All right, what about mouthfeel? It's uh, pretty two percenty. What does that mean? Like, like two percent milk. Oh, you know, I just think I thought I think like two t o o presenty p r. No, like no, no, it's no. Presenting itself like, too it's much. Like two, I think the easiest way to understand body and wine is skim two percent whole milk. Got you right. So it's sort of a medium, medium. Yeah, yeah exactly. Minus. It's what everybody who drinks Pinot Grigio should be drinking instead. <laughs> right. So right there, here's a guy who's devoted, you know, the last eight, ten years of his life to wine. He's telling you to drop Pinot Grigio, and here's an alternative in the price, in the quality that's different. Made by human beings. Made by human beings. All right, so let's go palate. Okay. What do we... Uh, a lot of the stuff I think we described. I, I think you do get, uh, it, it sort of exacerbates that um, uh, Gruner is always centers for me around the spicy root vegetables, arugula, watercress, turnip, parsnip, whatever you want to call it. But I think I get a deeper sense of that on the palate. You get this sort of bitter radish. Um, I get that. This this particular one, right. too. I get the salt you mentioned earlier, right. which leads me to a little iodine. Um, I think that's what part of what makes it food friendly, but... That was my next question. The yeah. acidity is good on this wine, right? But also the bitterness. So it works with great with like artichoke. So give me your pairing. Asparagus. Uh, it is. It is hard every, green vegetables. It is every sommelier's like answer to like a nightmare. It's vegetable the nightmare situation. vegetable, <laughs> like Slayer. There you go. Uh, arugula. Uh, like yeah, watercress, turnip, um, parsnip. Um, Jesus. Yeah. Put it, me in prison <laughs> if I have to eat those vegetables the rest of my life. Uh, they actually, that's the, one of the traditional pairings is, is white, white asparagus because they're wild right. about that in Austria. Right. The spargel is what they call it. So do we like this wine? I like it very much. Good wine for the money. Absolutely. Good wine to bring to a dinner party Just if good you wine. knew what they're cooking. Okay, good. <laughs> I think this is totally the sort of thing that I would pick up a case of at the beginning of the summer. And if we make it through it by the end of the summer, then great. But if not, we can for drink sure. it in the fall. For sure. All right. Morgan, we're going to wrap up. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. You can follow us on Facebook, at The Grape Nation. That's where I'll post Morgan's wine list answers. I'll list the wine we're drinking, and we'll also put down a bunch of other recos he made during the show. Um, and like I said, I'll put down our weekly wine sip info. You could follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby, and now you can follow hashtags. So follow the hashtag, The Grape Nation. And we're at Twitter at BenRuby. Morgan, if we want to follow you, follow Oriole, where should we go? Uh, Oriole, I think, is on all its social media under Oriole NY. Right. Uh, and I'm just under Morgan W. Harris, okay. my initial. Right. It's all, all together. That's, that's Instagram and uh, Twitter. 
I mean, you're you're a student social media, but you're not a heavy user. I would say. Yeah, right? I mean, I do. I don't do Facebook uh, just because I, I it interacts with a bad corner of my brain. I don't either, except for the show. <laughs> you know, the show's uh, yeah, I haven't had one me. since 2010, but I was an early adopter because um, right. I was in Boston in 2004 when it. Remember when Facebook was just colleges? That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do a lot of a lot of Instagram and a lot of Twitter. Cool. So, and I'm always happy to get back to people. If people have questions, just DM me, and I'm. So that's Morgan G-A-N, W yeah. Harris H A R I S. Morgan like Morgan Freeman, right? W like the letter W, and then Harris like as an Ed. That's where you can find Morgan. And if you're in Oriel in New York City, look for Morgan. He'll certainly steer you in the right direction. All right, I want to thank our guest Morgan Harris. Morgan Harris is the head psalm at Oriel in New York City. I want to thank our engineer David tonight who's sitting in for Vitor. David and I... David, right, happy birthday to Vitor. David and I are heading to Charleston tomorrow. We're going to be broadcasting live from the uh, Charleston Wine and Food Festival, which will be on the On Tour and Live um, section. Um, And thank you to everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.